My dad used to tell me, you'd better be careful what you wish for. And he used to tell me, you'd better be careful what you ask for. Well, it's no secret that one of my very favorite things in, in Christianity and Bible study and preaching is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I love everything related to those realities. Christ's righteousness credited to us, the federal headship of Adam and Jesus. Uh, just my very favorite things to read about, talk about, think about. So when I was working on my doctorate of ministry at Ligonier, uh, when it came time for our final projects, uh, our dissertations, if you will, I wanted to write about issues related to those things. Uh, because lots of times, even in our kinds of circles, people don't understand those things uh, or even reject some of those things. So I wanted to write about that. I submitted my uh, title and concept to Ligonier, the administration. They said yes. Then they said, who would you like to have as your academic advisor? Well, I thought, well, I actually wasn't thinking. But I thought to myself, who do I know who's writing about these issues and knows more about these issues than, in my humble opinion, anyone else? Well, that's easy. That would be J.V. Fesco. His books on justification and all these other articles and all these other things and what he teaches. And I thought, he, he's the guy. I'll just ask for him. I didn't listen to my dad's advice. Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> I thought he knows the most. He's the, he, I call him the justification answer man. I, and however long later, a couple weeks later, Ligonier responded back and said, Dr. Fesco has agreed to be your advisor. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> that was a terrible idea. Uh, it's going to be hard because he knows so much about the topic. Well, in God's grace, I'm super grateful um, that that happened. And I'm super grateful that I didn't take my dad's advice there um, because I think the project ended up being better and I learned far more from someone who knew so much. Uh, I am grateful for Dr. John Fesco. Uh, he is a, uh, he's the academic dean at Westminster Seminary, California. He's also a professor of systematic theology. He's also a professor of historical theology. Uh, and he has written some very important books, helpful books, uh, and he's very good at making complex concepts simple. Maybe that's why I like him so much. So from Escondido, California, uh, Dr. John Fesco is going to join us now to preach God's Word. Let's welcome him this morning. You guys have been so warm and welcoming, and I really appreciate all of the hospitality that I've received. Uh, it has just been a real joy to be here with you uh, this uh, weekend and now, of course, this Lord's Day. Uh, let's uh, go ahead and uh, open our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. And uh, our message this morning is going to come from uh, verses 1 through 5 verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. And so let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. 
Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Well, we're getting very close here as we're in the month of October uh, to the celebration of the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther, on October 31st, on the eve of All Saints' Day, went to the castle door at Wittenberg and he posted his 95 theses so that he could debate with local church officials a number of theological propositions because he saw some things that were concerning him in the church at that particular point in history. He was concerned because, long story short, it seemed as if people were seeking to buy their salvation. There was a gentleman by the name of Johann Tetzel who was going around and saying that he was selling indulgences. In other words, uh, writs of more or less the forgiveness of sin from the Pope if you were enabled, if you were to give a gift to the church. Now, it wasn't something as necessarily as crass as you pay and you can play. By the time it filtered down to the common people, that's more or less what had happened. And the old saying went, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And so Luther was concerned. And now it took him a number of years to be able to come to the point where he understood the gospel, I think, with really crystal clear biblical fidelity. In other words, he was able to look at the Bible and understand that it is God who forgives us by his grace and it is God who accredits the perfect obedience and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ to us by faith alone and through grace alone. So much so that when Luther understood these things, he said that he felt as if the gates of heaven had been flung open and that he was free to enter in, and that he truly, for the first time in his life, understood what it meant to be forgiven of his sins, and understood what it meant that the gospel was the free gift of God. And so Luther went about to go ahead and to, to start writing on these things, and to publish these things, writing pamphlets and what have you, and engaging in theological discussions and debates, and it wasn't very long before the Roman Catholic Church decided that they needed to respond to Luther's teaching, among other Protestant reformers as well. And the Roman Catholic Church officially issued its formal declarations, in essence, condemning the gospel. 
Because what Martin Luther said is he says that when we are saved, we are saved by an alien righteousness. A righteousness and an obedience that is not our own. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church said, no, that's wrong. You have to be saved not only by the righteousness of Christ, but also you have to contribute your own righteousness. So it's a combination between Christ's works and your works. Whereas Luther said, no, they're alien works. They're the works of Christ and Christ alone that save you. In other words, he said that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Or in more technical terms, we receive the imputed, the accredited righteousness of the accredited obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith so that we rest in his work. Well, among the many biblical texts that you find Protestant reformers like Luther appealing to, Zechariah chapter 3 is one of them. Because what we see here in this Old Testament passage is we see a beautiful portrait of the doctrine of imputation, the idea that when God saves us, he saves us not by our own works, but by the obedience of Christ given freely, imputed to us. Christ's obedience transferred to our account. And so I think what we see here is maybe that idea that we find in that Old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at what we find here in these first five verses in Zechariah chapter 3 so that we can understand why it was that Luther was willing, really, to risk his life to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, to risk his life to promote the idea that we are saved by the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ and not our own good works. It's not that we can somehow combine our good works and Christ's works in some sort of alchemy to be able to produce the gold of salvation. Far from it. Rather, it is that Jesus Christ, by his grace, grants us the gold of salvation freely as a gift. And this is what we find here in this passage. And what I want to do is I want to do that under three headings. First, I want us to understand the setting of this passage so that we can understand what's going on. In a sense, we want to step back a couple thousand years plus so that we can understand what was going on when Zechariah recorded this, this prophecy. And then second, I want us to understand the specific nature of the charge. In other words, why is it that Joshua stood guilty and condemned before God. And then third and finally, I want us to understand what Zechariah has to say here about the free nature of salvation, the gift, the gift that Joshua the high priest receives in this vision. So we want to look at the setting, then secondly, the charge, and then third and finally, the gift. Now, Zechariah the prophet, he gave these uh, visions, these revelations, uh, during the time when Israel was uh, enduring their Babylonian exile. They had been taken out of the land, they had been conquered, and they were removed, far removed 
from the land of Israel. But God had relented and he was now going to repatriate them to the land and he had issued a decree through Cyrus, the king, that Israel's leaders would be allowed to rebuild the temple because essentially the temple had been destroyed. But if they were going to rebuild the temple, that was certainly a glorious thing. That meant that once again, God's people would be able to enter into the presence of God and to worship him and to offer sacrifices. But building the temple was not enough. There's a sense in which we can say that not only was the temple in ruins, but so was the priesthood. And if the temple was destroyed, you could rebuild the temple, but you had to, in a sense, rebuild the priesthood. The priestly line had been, in a sense, cut off. And so they had to reconstitute the priestly order. They had to start it up again. Because without a high priest, Israel could not present its sacrifices. They couldn't have the annual Day of Atonement where the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, offer up the sacrifice that would enable them to have fellowship with God. Because even though the people were going to return to the land after being in exile, if they didn't have priests, there would be a sense in which we could say that they were like a married couple who were at odds with one another, who were at one another, but were still living under the same roof. They might have been under the same roof, but they were, in a sense, worlds apart. And in this particular case, we can say that Israel, God's bride, had cheated on her husband. And her husband was willing to forgive her and to let her back into the house. But there still needed to be added steps of reconciliation that could only take place when and if they reestablished the priesthood. And so even though they were geographically close to the temple now, and in some sense we could say that they were closer to God, they were still theologically miles apart from him, apart from the priests. And so this is ultimately what this was, is this is a vision of the reconstitution of the priests of Israel so that Israel could once again enter into the presence of God and exercise fellowship and worship and communion with their covenant Lord. So that's the setting. But what about the charge? Well, here Zechariah has a number of visions that he receives from the Lord by divine revelation. In this particular one, he sees Joshua, the high priest, standing in the presence of the Lord, and he sees the accuser, Satan. That, in fact, is what that Hebrew word means. Ha-Satan means the accuser. And you see that there in verse 1. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy robes. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel and and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now in particular when it says in verse 3, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy robes, the English translation I think doesn't quite capture the gravity of the situation. Because you can say that, well, I I have filthy hands. I can remember going on a hike in the high Sierras, and we were there for 
uh, 10 days. No showers. It was disgusting. I'm not used to that. I'm high maintenance. My idea of camping is, you know, the Holiday Inn with a broken remote. I could say that my hands were filthy because it was dirt and whatnot. And but I thought, well, it's just dirt. So, I, you know, I'd still eat my food. It was really disgusting, too, because the way that you clean out the, the pan for your food is you put dirt in it and rub it around in there. And I was like, is that really the best way to do that? Well, there's always a certain amount of filth that we're willing to live with. You know, my wife is always telling my children, wash your hands, wash your hands. That's filth. That doesn't quite capture what's going on here. The words that we find here in particular that says filth is the same words that other portions of the Old Testament use to characterize and to describe human waste. Deuteronomy 23, verses 13 and 14, it's the same word that the Lord says, hey, I walk in the midst of your camp, Dig a hole and bury your waste. The ESV in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 8, not to be disgusting, but nevertheless uses this same word for human vomit. And in Isaiah 36, 12, it's translated as dung. So when we read there in verse 3, now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord clothed with filthy garments. His garments are covered in human waste and vomit. It's not just a little bit of dirt. His situation is dire. I mean, you can imagine. You're going into the presence of God. I mean, let's dial it down just for a second you're going out on a nice dinner date with your wife. That's not going to be the clothing that you want to wear. You're not going to want to show up to the restaurant dressed like that. But now you turn back the dial up and all of a sudden you're going to be standing in the presence of God and you're covered in human waste. In terms of Old Testament defilement, being in contact with human waste is about as ceremonially unclean as you can be. And so here I suspect that Joshua the high priest would have been absolutely terror-stricken to be in the presence of God. Here a high priest would recognize, he would know Israel's history well, and he would know that as a high priest, he was supposed to go into the presence of God with absolute cleanliness and holiness. According to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4, he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the sash, uh, a linen around his waist, and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. These garments were supposed to be absolutely spotless because he was entering into the presence of a holy God, a holy God who is not to countenance any kind of uncleanness or any kind of sin, let alone human waste. And if you were in such a condition, you were not supposed to be allowed inside the camp, 
let alone inside the temple or in the Holy of Holies. You were supposed to be put outside the camp until you went through the ritual cleansing. Think, for example, of what happened to Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons in Leviticus chapter 10, when they were appropriately dressed, they had bathed, they had gone through the purification rites, and yet, nevertheless, all they did was bring unauthorized fire before the Lord, some incense that God had not commanded them, and he struck them dead for the transgression. So what would happen, therefore, to Joshua trying to stand in the Holy of Holies, smeared in dung? And so when the accuser is there, standing there in the presence of Joshua, standing there in the presence of the Lord, he levels the charge against him. The accuser, in one sense, has every right And he speaks true words. Look at him. He's covered in filth. I suspect at those words, Joshua would have trembled. He would have trembled. Verse 2, which brings us now to the gift. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now notice what what the Lord does not do. He doesn't say, No, he's he's really not that dirty. You know, just just cover up your nose and I think it'll be fine doesn't say that. But I suspect as those words rang out in the divine courtroom, the Lord rebuke you, that Joshua must have breathed a massive sigh of relief because he knew that God had every right to judge him for appearing in such a state in his presence. And yet the Lord shone the light of his rebuke upon the dark words of the accuser and caused them to flee. You could also say that the Lord's words of rebuke were the outpouring of divine grace and water, if you will, upon uh, his fiery judgment that was undoubtedly resting upon him. But notice that the Lord does not dispute the accuser's words. He doesn't dispute the claim. But he still rebukes Satan But how is this possible? How can the Lord rebuke Satan by invoking the name of the Lord? I think the imagery is somewhat cloudy. We're not exactly sure as to how many people are standing in frame. But I think that as we move forward into the New Testament, we find that it is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ who is our advocate in the holy courtroom of God. And so that ultimately, what we find here is that Joshua the high priest hears the words of the Lord Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ rebukes Satan, as Jesus intercedes on behalf of this defiled priest. 
and he rebukes Satan and he invokes two important points. And he says, first of all, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, he says. In other words, Joshua stands as a representative not merely of Jerusalem, but of the entire nation. But then secondly, in spite of Israel's defilement, in spite of Joshua's defilement, he's going to show and extend mercy to him and mercy to the nation. And so he describes Israel vis-a-vis Joshua standing there in his presence as a brand, as a stick plucked from the fire. So notice what this conveys to us. It's the idea that Joshua certainly deserves the punishment. He's got the fire all about him. But nevertheless, Jesus Christ rebukes Satan and he says, No, the Lord rebuke you. This is a brand plucked from the fire. And here, all of a sudden, Christ's words set a chain reaction into motion see this, for example, in verse 4, when he says, remove the filthy garments from him. Remove the filthy garments from him. But notice how he characterizes this. With the removal of the garments, it's not just simply taking away these disgusting clothes. He says, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. You see, the disgusting garments aren't just simply nasty clothes. They were ultimately symbolic for the sin that Israel had as a nation or that Joshua the high priest personally possessed. So often I think that when we consider our sin, we don't recognize its gravity. We don't recognize how offensive it is to God. Because often what we do is we compare ourselves one to another. I know I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, and sometimes we pick some of the worst people in the history of the world to compare ourselves to. Yet it's often, I've heard it described as you look at a sheep in a green pasture. And when I did my doctoral studies in Scotland, I remember driving past a couple of green pastures and you'd see sheep out there in the pasture. And the sheep looks somewhat brilliant. Looks, you see the white, you know, cotton that it's wearing, so to speak. But then you take that sheep and you put that sheep upon a field that has a fresh blanket of snow upon it, and all of a sudden, that sheep doesn't look so clean anymore. It looks a bit stained. It looks a bit dirty. In other words, when we stand in the presence of a holy God, we're not comparing one another. We're not comparing to each other. We're not saying, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. We have to recognize that we have to be compared with the absolute righteousness of our thrice holy God. And in that comparison, we are clothed, as Joshua was, in the filthy human waist-stained garments. And yet, God, by his grace in Christ, says, 
the Lord rebuke you, is not Jerusalem a brand plucked from the fire? Remove his clothes. Behold, I have removed your sin from you. I have removed your sin from you. So notice the nature of this gift. This must have been a tremendous sense of relief to Zechariah. Because not only did God say the Lord rebuke you, but now he's removed the sin-stained garments. And he's done so not for anything that Joshua has done. Joshua has just stood there worthy of condemnation, worthy of judgment, worthy of God's wrath. But by God's grace and by his gift, he removes these sin-stained garments. But notice that God doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. Remove the filthy garments, middle of verse 4, from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And, one of maybe the most glorious conjunctions in the Bible, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. If his sin was symbolized there in the filthy garments that he had, then that means that God is giving to him pure garments that are symbolic of the righteousness and the perfection that is necessary to stand in the presence of God. He is giving to him a garment of righteousness, a garment of perfection. Now, Zechariah gets so excited about all of this. He says there in verse 5, And I said, you know, notice who's talking. It's the Lord saying, Remove his sin-stained garments, and I will give you pure vestments. And then Zechariah says, And I said. It's like, yeah, and I said, yeah, and give him a turban too. You know, he gets into the act. He's so excited about this. Even the prophet is overwhelmed with the abundance of, of God's grace as he clothes the high priest in these garments of righteousness. Now in the conceptual world of the temple, we have to understand that the garments were important because not only was it the fact that the high priest could not appear unclothed in the presence of God, and this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they recognized that they were naked And so God in his grace clothed them because he could not stand them bearing their sin unclothed in that manner. And so he clothed them. And so he gave instructions to the Israelites saying, when you appear in my presence, you have to be clothed. But ultimately what this clothing was symbolic of is the robe of God's righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. Listen to what the prophet says. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. 
So here God has given to Joshua the high priest the garments of salvation so much so that he has pure vestments indicative now that he is no longer clothed in his sin but rather he is clothed in the absolute perfection and righteousness of Christ so much so that There is now no defilement in him. He is pure, he is spotless, and he has received all of this by God's grace, freely as a gift. So now, now, the words of the accuser are false. They no longer ring true. The accuser can't say, look at him. Look at his filth. Because now he's clothed in these righteous garments. Joshua no longer has to fear the just condemnation that was due him. Now what Zechariah sees here in this imagery, what Zechariah sees in this vision, the enrobing, the, the, the clothing that Joshua the high priest receives, the Apostle Paul gives to us uh, very concisely and clearly in his epistle to the church at Rome, when he writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 and following, he says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were constituted sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be constituted righteous. In other words, it is through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that we receive by faith alone, like Joshua, standing condemned in the presence of God, we receive it simply by, by believing on what Christ has done, and God removes our filthy garments, and he clothes us in the perfection of, and, and the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus Christ. So that now you need not fear going into the presence of God, you can go into the presence of God boldly knowing that you no longer go to your judge, but rather you go to see your heavenly Father. What joy, what blessing that we receive Christ's robe and that we receive it freely as a blessing. In more technical terms, what Zechariah shows us in this vision is God imputes to us, he accredits to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is what Zechariah sees when he sees the high priest given these new, fresh, and clean, and pure garments of linen. And notice that there is nothing that Joshua does in this picture. He doesn't say, hang on, let me go out and get cleaned up. He doesn't say, "Um, is there anything that I can do for you now? He just recognizes the utter horridness of his state and that there was nothing that he could do and so it was God who had to do it all. As we conclude, I want you to think of two things. I want you to think of two things. I want you to think of 
the worst thing that you think you've ever done in your entire life. And I suspect there are perhaps many that don't know what you've done. God knows. And what would happen if everyone that you know found out what you did? Maybe it was something that you did to somebody else. Maybe it's something that you did with somebody else. Maybe it's something that you think on a regular basis. Maybe it's something that you look at. Maybe it's something that you have said. Beloved in Christ, those are your sin-stained garments. And because you are in Christ, they are no more. They are gone. You are a brand plucked from the fire. Those things are gone, buried. As the psalmist says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so has God removed our sin from us. So much so that the Bible describes it in almost the impossible terms that God forgets. God forgets. Not because he has simply ignored it, but because he has forgiven you through the person and work of Christ because Jesus Christ has interceded on your behalf. He has suffered the penalty that was due to you. He has been perfectly obedient to the law in your place. And through faith alone, He has given to you by His grace alone His code of righteousness so that you stand perfect. You are the spotless bride in the presence of God. The second thing I want you to think of is this. Think of uh, Jacob and Esau. Remember the story in Genesis chapter 27. When Jacob sought the blessing of his father, he knew that it was due to Esau. And so some plotting and some deception, he worked in concert with his mother, said, uh, while he's out hunting, I want you to go get your brother's coat, put it on so that you smell like Esau. And I'll cook up your father's favorite dish. I'll cook up some juicy meat. And then I want you to take this meal, give it to your father, and then go in there wearing your brother's coat so that you can receive your father's blessing, the blessing of the covenant. So Jacob thought that he could receive the blessing of the covenant by just going in there and wearing his brother's coat and pretending to be his brother all to receive the blessing of his father. Here's the wonderful thing. You don't have to try to trick your heavenly father because he has freely given you the coat of your elder brother so that you can go into your father's presence 
And you can freely and knowingly wearing that coat can receive the blessing from your Father of eternal life, irrevocably, immutably, unchangeably. Think about that today and go forward into your life the rest of this day knowing that you stand righteous and pure because you are clothed in the robe of Christ. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for your mercy and for your love. Indeed, apart from Christ, we are the most to be pitied because we are covered in the stain and the guilt of sin. Oh, Father God, we pray that you would have mercy upon us. May we lay down all of our efforts to try to please you, all of our efforts to try to somehow earn your grace, all of our efforts, O oh Lord, to try to hide our sin. Let us recognize that indeed apart from Christ we stand condemned and the words of the accusers ring true. But by your mercy and your grace, you have freely given us the coat of the Lord Jesus Christ, his robe of righteousness. You have removed our filthy garments so that we stand in your presence, whole, redeemed, pure, holy, and righteous. Father God, we pray that you would remove the burden of guilt and the shame that we carry about with us. That you would free us from those things, that we would lay them at the foot of the cross and that you would convey to us peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding and even joy in knowing that we have peace with you through Christ. Oh Lord, if there are any here today that have not yet professed faith, we ask and pray that indeed you would enable them to do so, that they would seek the code of Christ and that you would open their eyes of faith, that they would rest, receive, and accept the free gift that comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, by your grace alone. Fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving because of this wonderful gift. Mark our lives in this way to your glory. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So glad you all are here. Um, I don't want to take away from what John Fesco just encouraged us to do. Uh, but as you go, to quote the Apostle Paul in, in light of what we've heard this morning, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Amen. Have a blessed day.